Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. Let me read this to us this morning. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed from the end of those, for the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. So we're continuing today, obviously, in our study of the book of Romans, and the elephant in today's text and and within this whole chapter is the word slave, as we read through this. Um, And what's curious here is that Paul is not invoking the word slave to denounce the practice of slavery or to make like a political statement about social justice or human rights. Instead, What Paul is actually doing is calling us to slavery. Despite what you might think, the gospel that Paul is proclaiming does not call you to somehow become more in control of yourself. Don't miss that. No, to the contrary, this gospel is calling you to give over control of yourself to another master, to Christ. In other words, Paul's not saying that you need To become a slave, he's saying, you are already a slave. You are already a slave. The question is, who is your master? Who is your master? Now, to our modern ears, the idea of giving over control of yourself to someone or something else sounds very strange. It sounds very antiquated. Most of us respond in a negative way to that kind of language. And as we've talked about before, we live in an age that is obsessed with the notion that there is a secret you or a hidden you deep down inside of you. And what you most need is to somehow find that real you and release that real you into the world. In other words, the common mindset is not that I need to give over control of myself to someone or something else, but instead I need to find the real me and I need to take control of my life, right? I need to step into a position of control in my life. Maybe you feel like other people have controlled your life. Parents, bosses, the culture in general, your friends, your peers. Maybe you feel like those things have been controlling you and I need to take control. I need to be the one that shapes how I live and shapes what I do. I need to be the one that guides my decisions. But that is not what Paul is guiding us towards this morning. Two weeks ago, we talked about Adam and Eve. We talked about the garden. Notice that for both Adam and Eve, 
the mindset, the idea in eating the fruit was we're going to do what we want. We're going to take control of our lives. But realize that the, cho- the choice that they were actually making was, are we going to do what God wants or are we going to do what the serpent wants? They were deceived. In eating the fruit, they thought that they were taking control of their life. But what they were actually doing was they were indenturing themselves to the serpent. They were deceived. They were deluded. They thought they would actually become the ones who would know the difference between good and evil. That they would actually become like God. That they would gain control. That they would become the masters. But obviously that's not at all what happened. So listen, the gospel is not calling you to take control of your life. Put that notion out of your mind. Reject what the culture is putting into you. Reject what secularism is putting into you. The gospel is calling you to give control to Christ and Christ alone. To wrestle control from the hands of sin. And this is what Paul is getting at in this chapter in general. You you can't have it both ways. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. So, So who's ruling Who's reigning in your body? Who's master of your life? Now, what's strange to me over the years is that I have heard, I've read these like Christian scholars and theologians and commentators who have what I find to be a peculiar perspective on slavery in the Greco-Roman world or in the first century world that we're reading about in the New Testament. And that peculiar perspective that I sometimes hear is that like maybe it wasn't that bad to be a slave in the first century. So so the idea sometimes is is that as we're reading through the Bible, we hear Paul talking about slavery, we hear Jesus talk about slavery, that, that maybe when first century readers heard the word slave, that maybe they didn't have all the negative connotations with that word that we have today here in the 21st century. And and I'm just not sure that I buy that. I'm not sure that I buy that notion. That all said, we we certainly do live in a culture that is marked by a history of slavery, right? A a violent and uh, like an egregious history of slavery, and and also a very narrow and specific history of slavery. Our history of slavery primarily concerns one particular ethnicity of people who were forcibly abducted, tortured, taken thousands of miles away from their home, uh, sold into unending manual labor, and a perpetual state of powerlessness. In the ancient world, however, slavery was not necessarily better, but it was definitely more complex. One non-Christian commentator I read notes that Jesus' parables actually tell us a lot about slavery in the first century. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but Jesus talks a lot about the master, right? The master who goes away and entrusts his, the Greek word is doulos. He entrusts his slaves. He entrusts his servants. It's interpreted in those two ways primarily. He entrusts them with money or land, What this commentator says is a slave might handle large sums of money for an owner, yet that owner could at will torture the slave, right? Even in Jesus' parables, the master returns, a slave hasn't done what he's supposed to do, 
and the master casts him out into outer darkness. This guy goes on to say, a slave might function as a trusted agent of a slaveholder, but his low status nonetheless left him vulnerable to physical abuse by those he encountered. Some slaves were overseers, exerting physical control over lower-ranking slaves. Lower-ranking slaves endured the violence not only of slaveholders, but also of slave overseers. Some slaves enjoyed their owner's trust, but perhaps all slaves lived in fear. Now, that doesn't really sound all that different, does it? That doesn't sound like a good life. That doesn't sound like the kind of like, free, flourishing life that God originally designed for anybody to have. Another similarity between America's history of slavery and the slavery of the New Testament world was that there were all kinds of philosophical and even religious justifications for slavery. One, one scholar says that slavery found a justification in philosophical treatises of that time that endeavored to prove the existence of two kinds of human beings. Even Aristotle, the great thinker, stated that some human beings were by their nature meant for slavery because of the lack of intellectual capabilities that they had were essential maybe for an autonomous life. Or in other words, to put it crudely, dumb people are destined to be slaves, smart people are destined to be free. This is the way that people thought way back then. This is the way that people thought in the 1800s here in America. This is the way that some people even think today. Lindsay and I have uh, been to uh, the country of Rwanda a couple of times. We have a sponsor child in Rwanda that we've been sponsoring for years now. He's, he's not a, really a child anymore. He's about to graduate high school here pretty soon. And um, if you guys remember back in 1994, there, there was just this horrific genocide in Rwanda. Uh, something like a million people were murdered over the course of about 10 days. Like, it, it was unbelievable. You go to Rwanda today, one of the things we noticed was that there are no dogs. There are no dogs. You don't see any, like, pet dogs anywhere. And, and what we were told when we were there was that there were so many dead bodies in the wake of the genocide and there were dogs, and the dogs were just eating dead bodies in the street. It, like, it was such a horrific, traumatic scene that the country as a whole has just done away with dogs. Like, it, this is just how broken and messed up this kind of place is. And one of the reasons why that genocide happened was because the Dutch came in and colonized Rwanda. And when they came in, they actually started like registering people. And they didn't just register them based on whatever their historic tribe might have been. That, those lines were honestly kind of blurred when the Dutch came in. What they started doing was they started doing things like measuring people's nostrils. Like, they literally came in and started, like, applying metrics to body shapes. And they said, well, you're this and you're this. And over time, one group rose to power, this kind of arbitrary group that had been put in place. And another group was seen as inferior and demonized to the point where one group rises over the other group and murders a million people. Isn't that insane? That's the brokenness of our world. And I was thinking about just the justification that had to take place for that kind of stuff to happen. The, the, the like reasoning that had to take place for that kind of stuff to happen. We are masters at justifying our sin. We are masters at easing our consciences about even horrific and terrible things. 
As I mentioned, the word that the ESV translates as slave is that Greek word doulos. It's also often translated as the word servant. And isn't it interesting how we perhaps have a very different response to the word servant than we do to the word slave? While we may not see being a servant as a positive thing per se, that word may also not conjure up for us images of violence and human rights violations in the way that the word slave does. So, so my question is, why does Paul use such fraught terminology? Why does he describe things in this way? And I think there's one simple answer to that. Paul wants us to understand that in the same way that a slave is completely submitted completely submitted to his master. We are to be, church, we are to be totally submitted to Christ. Our minds are to be submitted to Christ. Our bodies are to be submitted to Christ. Our resources are to be submitted to Christ. Our children are to be submitted to Christ. Not in part, but in whole. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul even goes so far as to use the language of the slave market. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians. He tells, us, tells his readers, flee from sexual immorality. What he says is that every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. He says this, or do you not know? Are you not aware that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Why? Because you have been bought with a price. He says, so glorify God in your body. Paul says, you have been acquired. You have been acquired in a transaction, but in this transaction, it's not money that's the purchasing agent. It is the blood of Christ shed on your behalf. And the result of that transaction is that you have been rescued from a life of slavery to sin and a life of slavery to an evil master. You've been rescued from a life in which you think, I've taken control. Paul's point is, brothers and sisters, is if, if you grasp that, if you get what Christ has done for you, why would you ever willingly submit yourself or your body to sin again? Like, why would you ever give yourself over to that other master? And the answer is, we do that because we all like collectively have Stockholm Syndrome, in a way. Y'all know what Stockholm Syndrome is? It's that... It's that tr- psychological condition that occurs in the wake of great trauma and and often it's seen like when a kidnapped victim falls in love with his or her kidnapper or comes to empathize or identify with his or her kidnapper it's like this messed up thing where logically a does not lead to b does not lead to c but yet for some reason this seems to happen We have spent so long as slaves to sin that we don't know how to live without it, right? And and even if we recognize that the wages of sin is death, as Paul says, even if we grasp that sin is literally killing us, we are still inclined to feel affection for it. You've seen those people in your life who maybe cigarettes are literally killing them, 
And what do they do? They keep smoking cigarettes, right? Or, or, or drugs are literally killing them. And they keep doing drugs, right? Because it's not just a, a logic thing. It's, it's not just something you can think your way out of, right? It's something that has a hold on you in a way that makes you do things that make no sense whatsoever. That's what sin has done to us as well. Even if we know it's literally killing us, even if we know the wages of sin is death, we're still inclined to want it and to feel some sense of affection for it. It's like a textbook definition of addiction. So two thoughts this morning by way of application as I start to land the plane here. Two things that you need to commit yourself to that I need to commit myself to if you truly want to follow the teaching of not only Paul, but also Jesus. First of all, commit yourself to the task of renewing your mind. Commit yourself to the task of renewing your mind. Paul's going to get to this notion later in Romans chapter 12, but why not just kind of preview it this morning? Paul believes that if you want your life to be transformed, your mind needs to be healed. Your mind needs to be healed. What makes the drug addict who knows that drugs are killing her continue to take drugs? The mind is sick, right? I can't think correctly. I can't think straight. I can't think logically. This thing has a hold on me. Paul says sin is the same way. Your mind needs to be healed. It needs to be renewed. And much like our physical bodies, one of the most critical questions we can ask is what am I putting into my mind? What am I ingesting? What am I imbibing? What is going into you? What's going into me? What am I allowing my mind to dwell on? Paul said that we are not to submit our bodies or our members to sin. And I would dare say that many of us are living a dualistic slash schizophrenic life when it comes to that stuff. On one hand, there may not be like obvious external sin coming out of your life that other people can see, but what's going on inside of your mind? Because for many of us, there may not be that obvious external sin, but inside of our minds is darkness and lust. Inside of our minds is anger, jealousy, fear, covetousness. What are you putting in? For many of us, what's going in is social media, right? Which is nothing more than anger, lust, fear, covetousness, jealousy, just on parade all the time. TV, including whatever violence or crime or secularism or pseudo-pornography you're able to find on Netflix, even just watching the news, binging political pundits whose entire industry is built on outrage, fear, demonization, polarization, accusation. Doesn't matter if you're watching Fox News or MSNBC or CNN. Doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. It's what you're imbibing. What is it turning you into? So what do you put in instead? Well, luckily, Paul answers that for us also. This is Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, well, what you actually do is, is you, you say, well, what's true? 
what's honorable, what's just, what's pure, what's lovely, what's commendable, what's excellent, what's worthy of praise. He says, think about those things. What have you learned and received and heard and seen in me, he says, right? What have you seen in my life, church at Philippi? Seek to imbibe that. Practice these things, and he says, the peace of God will be with you. The second task is that you need to commit yourself, I need to commit myself to the task of making disciples. And that phrase, making disciples, I think can seem ambiguous for many of us. So here's how I want us to think about it today. Making disciples is about guiding others as they go about the process of renewing their minds. Making disciples is about guiding others as they go about the process of renewing their minds in Christ. Making disciples is about taking what you have learned from following Christ and seeking your own mental restoration and offering that experience to others as a guide. I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the experience. But let me walk with you. And let me seek to point you towards Christ. That's what disciple making is all about as we collectively seek the renewal of our minds, as we collectively seek this process of sanctification. And the beauty of all of that is you don't have to have reached some state of perfect spiritual maturity in order to disciple others. The thing you actually need the most is the Holy Spirit. The thing you need is not you. It's not your experience. The thing you need is God within you. That shouldn't be surprising. But yeah, maybe it is. I don't know. One of the biggest reasons why many of us don't go about that work is we think, I'm just not, I don't have the tools I need. You have the Word of God. You have the community of the church. You have the Spirit of God living within you. What are you waiting for? What, what tools specifically are you hoping to find? I don't know the right words. I don't know. Well, the Scriptures say, don't worry about that, that God will give you the right words when the time comes. Guys, I'm convinced for us as a church that one of the reasons why God has called us to do this work here in Shreveport is because we are called to make disciples. Are we going to make 400,000 disciples? Are we going to make four? Are we going to make 40? I don't know. But I know he's called us to make disciples and to do that well and to do that faithfully and to do that with excellence. I mean, that, that is our mission. That's the mission of the church at large. That's what a lot of other churches say they do. I want to be a church that really does it. Right? I want to be a church that is truly seeing disciples who don't just become more intelligent or more knowledgeable of theology, but disciples who are actually pouring their lives into the lives of others as they're seeking to grow in Christ and grow in the renewal of their own minds. That's who we're called to be as we are slaves to Christ. So Paul's presenting us with a slavery, a servanthood that we honestly have no context for in this world because it doesn't come from this world, does it? This is not something we find on earth. There's no such thing as good slavery in this world, but in God's kingdom, all things are restored. All things are restored. It doesn't come from the flesh. It comes from our Father who is perfect and it is only in slavery to Christ that we will ever find freedom. 
Let's pray. Jesus, we give you praise and honor and glory this morning for your goodness and grace. We praise you for the beauty of your gospel and the hope that we find in you. God, I pray for all of us, those who are part of our church community, who are here this morning, those who are watching online, those who are unable to do either today, God, I pray, God, that you would give us courage and boldness, endurance and patience as we walk through this season. And we pray through the power of your spirit that you would shape us and mold us into the men and women that you've called us to be, not casually just kind of floating through this life, but intentionally and boldly taking hold of the mission to which you have called us to invest our lives in the lives of others, to share what we have, to care for the needs of our neighbors so that you might receive glory and honor and so that your gospel might be carried to more and more people. Father, add to our number those who are being saved. Give us wisdom and eyes to see those around us who we can pull up alongside and pour the gospel into. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.